0: It's time for School, Rock School, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns.
1: What you had in the White House was Jackie Kennedy actually throws a twist party, and you had people like Jackie Kennedy, not John Kennedy because he had a bad back from World War II, Mm -hmm. but other members of the, the administration were also doing the twist in the White House.
0: Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show on the Rock School Radio Network. My name's Joe Burns, and I'm standing in an empty studio. I'm sorry Tammy is not with us this week, which means we've got another guest. This time we'll be speaking with a rather famous name in the world of music research, Richard Aquila. If the name sounds familiar, well, you probably know him as the former host of NPR's Rock and Roll America. But he's also a professor emeritus at Penn State University and an author, which is why we're speaking with him. He's got a new book, Rock and Roll in Kennedy's America, a cultural history of the early 60s. I really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. So let's talk with Richard Aquila on rock school on the phone with me richard aquila you may know him as the name that was once npr's rock and roll america host Uh, however he's going to spend some time with us today talking about his brand new book rock and roll in kennedy's america a cultural history of the early 1960s and i have questions richard thanks for being on the show my pleasure wonderful hey on a personal note while we're just getting underway you are a professor emeritus at Penn State University, yes?
1: Correct.
0: Right, my father is a Penn State alumni. Oh. I I have more pictures of me sitting on that Nittany Lion as a young person than than absolutely should have. So. Alright, <laughs> yes. first off... That's, that's quite a tradition. Uh, <laughs> it is. First off, I just want to talk an overriding idea. Okay. This This idea of Kennedy's America. We're not talking about a tremendous amount of time. You lead up to it. You talk about after. But Kennedy's America was this three, three and a half year space. And for some reason, it in history jumped out at you. What was so glorious about the Kennedy years and music?
1: A couple of things i would say joe uh, one of them is you got to put it into perspective in terms of what comes before john f kennedy what we're talking about is kennedy was the youngest elected president in american history 43 years old at the time he follows dwight eisenhower who at the time was the oldest uh president in american history and If Eisenhower came across in the 1950s as a grandfatherly figure, (laughs) John F. Kennedy is just the opposite. He's this youthful guy, uh, great hairdo, refused to wear hats because he didn't want to mess up his hair, Uh, would go out on weekends and play touch football with his brothers and go out sailing and do other types of things like that. And he really sort of captured uh, the image of the United States during that time. Uh, that during his presidency, that is the run for this presidency, he talks about how he wants to get the country moving again after the complacency of the Eisenhower era in the 1950s. And Kennedy puts forth all sorts of new ideas, new frontiers that America is going to conquer, according to Kennedy, uh, one of them being obviously the uh, getting a man up on the moon by the end of the 1960s decade, which the United States does accomplish. And it captures the imagination of the American people during that time period. He reinvigorates the country. And what's sort of going on in the United States in those years is this notion that this was going to be the American century. Coming out of World War II, In 1945, the United States was the number one country in the world, no matter how you wanted to judge it, whether it was based on military strength, whether it was based on the economy, whether it was based on technology and science, no one could touch the United States. And the idea was we can accomplish anything we set out to do. And captures the spirit of America during those years, as well as the youth culture during those years, too.
0: Here's my story, it's sad but true, it's about a girl that I once knew, she took my love then ran around with every single guy in town. that that uh frank sinatra re-recorded high hopes to act as a campaign theme song for kennedy but was kennedy a fan of all of this music that you write about in your book
1: well let me answer that by throwing out something i mentioned in the book and that is during the twist when the twist hits uh (laughs) What you had in the White House was Jackie Kennedy actually throws a twist party, and you had people like Jackie Kennedy, not John Kennedy because he had a bad back from World War II, mm-hmm. but other members of the, the administration were also doing the twist in the White House, so Kennedy, although... Kennedy was more into classical music. Uh, certainly, John F. Kennedy listened to all sorts of stuff, including some rock and roll songs. But I would not say he was a fan. But I also would not say he didn't, uh, you know, he never expressed that during that time period for political reasons, and plus his links to the youth culture. Come on, baby, let's do that.
0: Okay. All right, let's get straight back to rock and roll as you talked about it. I loved your chapter that went over girl bands. Oh, thank you. It may be Phil Spector's greatest achievement, although you may argue with me whether Phil Spector came up with them. I always go back to the Ronettes, and I think, and I'll just comment on this, I think girl bands were invented for girls which led to boy bands were invented for girls I think that's why it had such success the the girl bands were where women finally saw themselves young women as creating am I right about that is that the the success of the girl bands I I think to, to a large extent that's true
1: um it what girl groups are going to do is they're going to give voice to many young women in the late 1950s, and the early 1960s. I mean, we're talking a time in the late 1950s where you really don't find that many women singers out there as compared to males. And it was dominated by white males usually. But what's going to happen by the late 1950s and early 60s with the coming of rock and roll is the equation begins to change. And what we see is, as things are changing in the United States, as I talk about in the book, that what's going to happen is more and more women are going to have opportunities to sing. Whether it's pop music or country music or rhythm and blues or whether it's this new form, rock and roll. And it's providing those kind of opportunities. Uh, I, I would add though, not only does it give voice to young women during that time period, but it also attracted the interest of young males too. Mm -hmm. I mean, watching some of the girl groups that were performing, not so much with early girl groups like the Chantels or the Sherelles, because they're, image was rather sedate they dressed in cocktail dresses when they perform and so forth but then all of a sudden and you mentioned phil Spector. all of a sudden here come the ronettes mm-hmm. and the ronettes are wearing these tight skirts their hair is teased and they're really shaking on the stage and doing all sorts of stuff along those lines. And if if many young women were interested, you could make the argument that a lot of young guys were even more interested because of the (laughs) the sexuality of the Ronettes.
0: Yeah, but for a different reason, right? For different reasons. Hey, this is a great song. They're singing? Really? Go ahead. (laughs) I wanted to move into a different area. You talk a good bit, and I think you have to in the book, that race was a part of Kennedy's America. But one thing you do bring out, and it's not one specific paragraph, it comes here and there and here and there, was that it seemed that there was a tremendous amount of cross in that country was sung by African-American artists, and people enjoyed music whereas they wouldn't have sort of associated obviously there was some problems but it seemed to be that no matter who sang it a good song was a good song and I think you suggested that this was a way to at least get started talking about race relations
1: yeah and, and what I find it very interesting as I was doing that book and doing research on and everything else sometimes uh, like going to a school uh, in history classes we would always hear about certain landmark uh, decisions whether it's the supreme court or or events that are going on and when people talk about gains in civil rights for example they'll talk about martin luther king jr and the southern christian uh, leadership conference and marches on places like selma or birmingham and they'll view those as landmarks in the march toward more civil rights in the united states uh i would argue that other things are certainly happening sort of at the grassroots level as well that for the first time on a large scale you're going to have more african-americans seeing making the top 40 charts by their early 1960s than you ever had before in american history and what you had I'll give you specifics on that okay In 1960, uh, the African-American population of the United States was approximately 11%. The number of blacks who had top 40 hits in 1960 was 30% of those hits were done Mm -hmm. by African-Americans. By 1963, it jumps up to almost 37% of the hits on the charts were done by African-Americans. Now that seems to suggest that what's going on here is there are more and more opportunity for African Americans throughout American society and culture, and you'll see the same thing going on whether it's baseball during that time period or whether it's in in movies, you see that occurring as well. And rock and roll is sort of leading the way in terms of public entertainment when you're seeing the number of black singers who are making the charts. The other night, as I lay sleeping, I dream I hear of you.
0: It's time for our first break, but we'll be back in a minute to continue talking with Richard Aquila about his new book, Rock and Roll in Kennedy's America, on Rock School. Let me take a hard left-hand turn. I want to talk to you about surf music, and you're gonna have to explain to me, I I always thought of surf music as this little offshoot of the California sound, but you give it so much stronger a place in music history. Explain to me what it's about. Well, for me,
1: I think what happens, and and this has a lot to do with my, my specific background in terms of history, um, in fact, let me back up for just a second. Okay. When I first started out, I, I, as an undergraduate, I went to Bowling Green State University in Ohio. <laughs> me too. And, oh, oh yep. okay. <laughs> well, well, when I was there uh, and, I, and I was there, uh, I graduated from there in 1968. And when I was there at Bowling Green, Ray Brown was just starting up the pop culture center. And I, I can remember walking into the library and, I I loved it because it was like walking into this big garage sale because on this one floor where the pop culture center was going to be in the library, they were collecting all of these things, these old records and everything else. And now all these years later, uh, what what you find is Bowling Green has one of the top, uh, sound collections in the United States Mm -hmm. as far as these kind of records. But what you have, during those years essentially is that the music is going to be reflecting these times and and that's what I'm getting at here that it's a connection between for me between a time I spent at Bowling Green and I started out as a journalism major and then I wound up later on getting a PhD in American history but I always applied what i learned in those two places to whatever i was looking at and some of my earlier stuff was rather traditional i mean i wrote a book dealing with the american west and american indians and then i segued into more pop culture but what i realized getting back to surf music is surf music doesn't just pop up here in the early 1960s what you're really looking at is the myth of the American West that dates back centuries. And the notion was that out West, you could find spiritual regeneration you could find excitement you could find the perfect lifestyle that if you go to California and look seeking gold in 1849 and then throughout the early 1850s uh, you could find personal happiness and all sorts of things going on out west and Brian Wilson taps into that whether it's consciously or subconsciously, what he's getting at is this notion of this mythic West, this land of opportunity where you'll find excitement, you'll find all sorts of stuff, including later on, Jan and Dean, two girls for every boy, right, in Sur (laughs) City. It's always out West. That's where you're finding these things. And people were looking to the West throughout the 1950s. I mean, after World War II, california just is a boom town again as americans are flooding to california because that's where jobs are that's where they're going to find happiness none of this is new i mean what we're talking about is very similar to what happened in the united states uh in in the 1850s and beyond and i think surf music was simply at the time the most recent iteration of that california dream and what happens is it taps into what's going on here in many ways not just the spirit of the old american mythic west but also it taps into this notion in kennedy's america of confidence that the nation was going to accomplish all sorts of things optimistic uh, attitudes could be found everywhere during those years, and no place is going to be more optimistic than in terms of heading west and winding up surfing in all these different places. So when the Beach Boys initially sing, "Well, I want to take you on a surfing safari," I mean what they're talking about basically is that quest, that quest for happiness, which you're going to find specifically there on these beaches of of, of California.
0: Yeah. I I just real quick to get back to Bowling Green. Um, through my PhD, the pop culture offered what was essentially a minor, and I took all of my stuff in the pop culture house. And at that time, um, the pop culture thing that you're talking about literally owned the fourth floor. There was never a recording I asked for that I couldn't get a hold of. It's it's a brilliant thing and something Bowling Green oh, should be really proud oh, yes.
1: of. I mean, I I can remember doing the same thing. A a guy that I went to school with who later became the sound archivist, Bill Shirk was the guy's name. I don't know if you ever met Shirk. Doesn't ring a bell. Bill Shirk, uh, he and I had this thing going back and forth where I would try to quiz him on these things and I'll say I'll bet you didn't have this song and you go oh, yeah yeah we got that and he'd haul out these really obscure albums uh, that I was talking about sometimes or songs that I was talking about so yes it was a wonderful place for anybody who was interested in music and popular culture <laughs> Wipeout!
0: You're, <laughs> okay. you're going to have to explain Chapter Eight to me. I have never heard of a pop rock's second wave. What? What? What is that? You're going to have to define that one for me. Okay, w- w- what I meant by that, and and I I
1: kind of back it up uh, a bit because the, I broke pop rock really into to two sections uh, for to make it clearer to the reader. But also to try to show the changes that were going on and what you have is coming out of the 1950s there's the roots of pop rock that begin with people like pat boone who's sort of the you know the prototypical teen idol in some ways when he first hits in the mid-1950s and then other pop influenced rock and roll artists are going to pick up on that. I mean, people like uh, Ricky Nelson, you know, gets a start in the 1950s. And what I tried to do is as I was looking at all of this. And at first, when I, I, I first started doing the research on this book, it was overwhelming in terms of the number of artists and songs and everything else. And I was trying to make sense out of it to to make it understandable. Uh, as far as how all of these pieces fit together. And it was like a jigsaw puzzle, uh, a musical jigsaw puzzle in that sense, that when you put it all together, you get this overall picture of life in the United States and what the music's like and with all these different strains that are coming from rhythm and blues and from pop music and folk and country and other styles, too, that are mixed into that uh, blend. And In fact, I remember when I was interviewing Dion. Dan had a wonderful line, because I asked him about this in terms of how diverse the music was. And Dan's comment was, we all brought something different to the party. Some of us came out of country, some of us came out of rhythm and blues, others came out of pop. But what we did is we brought all these different ingredients in that you mix them together and you get this rock and roll sound in the 1950s. And in that that earlier chapter, uh, I think it was chapter seven there, I talk about some of those early pop rock artists who get their start in the 50s, but then they're able to make the transition into the following decade. Dion's a good example. He gets started with Dion of the Belmonts, and then he goes solo in 1960 and becomes a, you know, a superstar in his own right. Mm-hmm. It's like Run Around Sue and The Wanderer and all the rest. And... What I describe as a second wave are new pop rock artists who are hitting in the early 60s. These people are generally younger than, the, than those who came before them. And they're more in tune, no pun intended there, with the interests of the rock and roll audience that you have after 1960. In fact, let me elaborate on that, because really what we're talking about here is the first cohort of baby boomers enters high school in 1960. Mm -hmm. That's when baby boomers first hit. And the same year John F. Kennedy is elected to the presidency. And throughout their high school years, you know, 60 61 at school year and then the following and the following and until john f kennedy gets assassinated during their senior year those baby boomers are listening to new songs in some ways that are designed for that audience and in some ways you can argue those teenagers are somewhat different than the teenagers of the 1950s the teenagers of the 1950s uh are really a generation of rock and roll generation quite different from those who are going to be born let's say after world war ii who come of age in the early 1960s and this second wave of pop rock refers specifically joe to those people those artists who are getting their start in the early 60s people like gene pitney would fall into that category. Bobby V is another one who falls into that category. Mm-hmm. Brenda Lee is another, uh, although she's more country influenced in terms of what she's doing, right. although many people also thought in terms of her as a teen idol. But, I mean, we're talking a totally different group in some ways uh, who get their start in the early 60s. They say that
0: you're a runner love lover but if you put me down for another night I have, you're a history guy, I have uh, a lot of friends in the history department, in fact they've generally named me an honorary member of the history department, and a lot of these books that I get end up in their hands. There's a fella who is a Kennedy researcher and he said ask him this question so I'll just I'll give it to you the way I remember him saying it to me there would not have been such a strong British invasion had there not been the Kennedy assassination as a matter of fact the Beatles would have been just a fairly popular band and it would have been the second coming of the British, i.e. the Stones, Led Zeppelin, and all that, which would have been seen as the true British invention.
1: I think, in general, I agree. Mm -hmm. The devil's in the details here, though, uh, because I would disagree with some of the points in terms of how your friend sort of separates the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. and, and to answer this let, let me do it this way okay because I think you really have to put it into context in terms of what's going on prior to November 22nd 1963 Kennedy's assassination prior to that date if you look at the, the charts the billboard charts or you know the rock and rolls uh, hits that are making the charts you are not going to find anywhere in the early 1960s artists who are not americans and let me qualify that when i say artists i'm talking rock people consider to be rock and roll singers. Mm-hmm. You'll find novelty artists, Lonnie Donnigan singing, does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? <laughs> but that, that's not rock and roll. Uh, I mean, it's a, a pop novelty song. Sure. You'll find some artists like that, but I'm talking rock and roll artists. What I'm saying basically is prior to 1963, those rock and roll charts and those rock and roll artists were 99.9 percent american artists the idea was only americans could sing rock and roll because rock and roll is a, a strictly an american music form so you don't have or, you know, non-American singing it. Regardless of what, every once in a while a Canadian would sneak in and (laughs) sort of sing something and make a hit with it. But for the most part, what we're talking about is these artists are are American. And it kind of reflects the notion, the post-World War II attitude, that this is America, we're number one in the world, and this is our music, and of course nobody else could sing it. (laughs) And, and, And let me emphasize something here, I think this, This kind of reinforces what I'm getting at. And I I mentioned this in the book, that in early 1963, Dick Clark and American Bandstand uh, used to always feature a weekly segment that was called Raider Record. Yes. And Dick Clark would play a new release and there would be three or four kids from the the audience, all teenagers, would listen to the song as all the bandstand dancers are dancing to it. And Clark then would ask them, What did you think of the song afterwards? And everybody would rate it between one and a hundred, a hundred being perfect. Uh, anything in the 90s obviously would be an A, 70s, or excuse me, 80s would be a B, 70s a C, and so forth, going all the way down. And on this one occasion in early 1963, Dick Clark's going to be talking to uh, his former producer, Tony Mamarello, who then owned Swan Records, a Philadelphia-based label, and Bernie Binnick, and a- another good friend of Dick Clark's, who also owned Swan Records. And they told Clark, this is early 1963 now, they told Dick Clark, look, we have an exclusive on this new group that we've heard about that's causing quite a commotion in England. Their name is the Beatles. And Clark just looked at him and he thought, insects? What are you talking about? <laughs> and they explained to him, no, 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 this is a new group. It's spelled B-E-A-T-L-E-S. And they literally begged Clark, uh, hmm. you know, preview their song on an American bandstand's record, and just give us a break here. Because if we can sell 50,000 copies within four months, we will get a permanent contract to be the exclusive uh, agent for the Beatles and all other releases in the United States. So just do us a fair would you? At least play the record. And Clark, because he was close friends with both of them, Clark said, sure, I'll, I'll give it a whirl. So he plays in an American bandstand. Uh, you may know the song. It was called She Loves You.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a minor hit.
1: Your response here should be, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, but, thank uh, you. Yeah, you go. <laughs> but anyway, he, he plays She Loves You. The kids hated it, that oh. reviewed it. Oh, no. And they said, it, we, we don't like those harmonies, and why are they yelling, ooh, and so forth on that song? And they gave it, the average for these four reviewers was a 72, which That's... is mediocre, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now that's in early 1963 two or three weeks after Kennedy's assassination the Beatles are going to become a phenomenon in the United States and I I guess what that leads to well that led to Clark basically he ran into Bernie Bennett back later on and Clark said you know why didn't you buy 50,000 copies of the record <laughs> yourself? You were yeah. have been multi-millionaires. Oh yeah. And and Binick's response was, look, you rated it on your program, teenagers thought it was terrible, we thought we had a stiff, so we didn't promote it at all. So we lost out, is what it amounted to. Yeah. Now, all of that leads to the question, if the Beatles and all these other artists couldn't make it in early 1963 or before, why all of a sudden in late 1963 and then even more so after january of 1964 do you have this eruption of this british rock invasion and like your friend i would make the argument what the tipping point is kennedy's assassination
0: Let's take our second break and allow our affiliates to play their sponsors. But we'll be back in a minute to continue talking with Richard Aquila about his new book, Rock and Roll in Kennedy's America, on Rock School. Do me a favor and bring the war into rock and roll. Now, when I say the war, obviously there was Vietnam, Bay of Pigs, Cold War, and you go into this into the book. So bring the war into the music of the day. It's a real turning point in terms
1: of the music, too. And here we're going to go beyond what I was writing about specifically in the book. But I think the, in order to understand what comes later on, you got to understand what was going on in the early 1960s. One of the chapters in my book uh, is called For God, Country, and My Baby, which was a hit by Johnny Burnett. Uh, that song came out on the heels of... Some of the problems John F. Kennedy was having with Nikita Khrushchev. And it looked for a while that the United States was going to be involved in a nuclear war, uh, essentially with the Soviet Union. And what you had taking place, starting you know just weeks after John F. Kennedy becomes President of the United States, uh, is you have the Bay of Pigs invasion in in Cuba followed by other things such as the cuban missile crisis followed by other things like the berlin crisis and the building of the berlin wall every one of those instances had the united states and the soviet union square off against each other and what you had in those in each one of those cases is the american people uh know consensus behavior during that time period supported the president of the united states and were and were willing to do what was necessary to stop the spread of communism to contain it using the the, the language from that era and even if it meant go into war and when the united states and the soviet union were squaring off over what was going on in berlin and the building of the berlin wall and everything else that was part of that between president kennedy and the the leader of the soviet union nikita khrushchev as as it looks like the united states might be going to war johnny burnett sings this song you know i'll go for god country and my baby is what he sings in that song mm-hmm. and uh, many American teenagers applauded it because they, too, felt the same thing. Bo Diddley, during that same time period, uh, came out with a song called Mr. Khrushchev. And in it, he directs it to, to Khrushchev to an extent, but also to to American teenagers. And basically what he's, say, what he's saying is, come on, we've got we to gotta help out the president, President Kennedy here. And he's encouraging young Americans to enlist. Now that's a very, very different mindset that if you fast forward to 1968, you're gonna find just the opposite in terms of many teenagers. And what's going on is that entire Cold War culture is going to slowly but surely unravel after the death of John F. Kennedy. And by the late 1960s, America is a very different country with a different zeitgeist that is a different mood than America of 1961. And what happens is, as all of that optimism that was going on in the early 60s, that things were going to get better, the United States was going to achieve all of its goals and its principles of life, liberty and justice for everyone. All of that, after Kennedy's death, comes under attack. And what's going to happen in the United States is a lot of those movements that began optimistically, peacefully in the early 60s, those things are beginning to unravel by the late 60s. Civil rights movement is, you know, comes to mind here. Mm-hmm. That Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, you know, the notion of we shall overcome, that someday we're going to do this and we're going to do it through peaceful marches. All of that is coming under fire by the late 1960s when black power and violence uh, and other types of civil unrest is going to hit, displacing some of that early optimism of the civil rights movement. The same thing happens to the youth culture. Things begin rather optimistically, even after Kennedy's death, uh, when you have the rise of the so-called counterculture and hippies, uh, what's going to happen is it all starts out peacefully, lovingly, that, you know, uh, go to San Francisco, wear flowers in your hair, and it's going to be peace for everyone. All of a sudden, by 1968, that's a nightmare year where it, the country erupts in violence, violence in urban unrest, violence in terms of political assassinations, and all sorts of other things are going to take place. And by the end of the 1960s, it's pretty evident to most Americans that, and well, I, I, I shouldn't even say most Americans, a large segment of the population, because the country's going to be quite polarized by the end of the 1960s what so what begins with kennedy as consensus behavior and americans essentially believing that the country could could uh, uh, achieve all of its goals by the end of that decade people are no longer quite as certain and when it Mm -hmm. comes to war they're questioning vietnam they're questioning later on what's happening during the reagan era and what reagan is doing and the music is going to reflect those changes.
0: I want to give you one more. And it's, it's the the consummate interview softball question. You, <laughs> you finish, <laughs> I look forward <laughs> Okay. You, uh, you finish the book by uh, quoting the Drifters' This Magic Moment. So right. is that your favorite song? And if not, what is your favorite song? You're a music guy. You got one? that's that's actually a very hard question Um, (laughs) let me say it kind of
1: depends on what day of the week it is how I wake up that day what my (laughs) mood is like and I could find songs to fit all these different moods Uh, I could tell you all all during those years and and to this day too I was always a Buddy Holly fan a really big Buddy Holly fan so lots of Buddy Holly songs would be in there in terms of favorite songs but uh and then other individuals who, who sort of copied that sound later on. Um, there are lots of different things. It it all depends on artists. And like I said, what kind of mood I'm in. But I, I mean, some of the artists that I really liked during that time period would be people like Rory Orbison. Gene Pitney was another. And if if people have never really listened to some of the you know the, the 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 songs done by those artists, rather than just some of the individual songs that people know, but other types of more obscure songs too. They're in for a treat going back and rediscovering those kind of songs. Sure. And uh, so, for me, uh, it, what your your softball question was kind of. A hard fastball in some ways, Joe, <laughs> because it's hard to answer for me because there are so many different songs. But I, I guess I'd have to pick out, if if I'm talking one song, Buddy Holly, yeah. Peggy Sue.
0: Oh, I like it. I thought for sure it was going to be That'll Be the Day. I like it. There's your curveball coming back. So, okay. Richard Aquila, you have a book, and we've been talking about it, Rock and Roll in Kennedy's America, A Cultural History of the early 1960s. So is it available at fine booksellers everywhere? Yes. Richard, thank you so much for taking an hour of your life and uh, talking with us here on The Rock School Show. Thank you. My pleasure too, Joe. Nice talking to you. (laughs)
1: Yeah.